Can you dream of a world immune to cancer? Hello everyone, my name is Nick and I'm the host of the annual live stream for The Cure where content creators and podcasters from around the world join me to raise money for the Cancer Research Institute and Immunotherapy Research, which is training the body's immune system to fight against all forms of cancer. Over the past seven years, thanks to the power of indie podcasters and the indie podcasting community and listeners just like you listening to this right now, we have raised over $90,000. And as I record this now, the eighth annual live stream for The Cure is barreling down upon us really, really quickly in just about two weeks. So join us, please, from May 29th through June 1st for 48 hours of amazing content from people all over the world and help us fight for a world immune to cancer. And I'll now return you to your regularly scheduled programming. Thank you so, so much. And together, we can make a difference. People once believed that when someone dies, a crow carries their soul to the land of the dead. But sometimes, something so bad happens that a terrible sadness is carried with it and the soul can't rest. Then sometimes, just sometimes, the crow can bring that soul back the wrong things right. In a world overflowing with movies, we need a hero. Someone to separate the bad from the good. Hi everyone, I'm Em and welcome to Verbal Diorama, episode 148, The Crow. This is the podcast that's all about the history and legacy of movies you know and movies you don't. Welcome to Verbal Diorama, all of you brand new listeners to this podcast, because I know there's probably a couple of you out there. And also welcome back, regular returning listeners. Thank you for being here. Thank you for coming back. And thank you for choosing this podcast because there are a lot of movie podcasts out there. They're all vying for your ears. And I'm so grateful that you have chosen this one to listen to. No matter how you found this podcast, I am genuinely so grateful that you have. And I'm really happy to have you here for the history and legacy of The Crow. And this is a story that I think most people do know. But I also think it bears repeating especially when onset safety still seems to be an issue where handguns are concerned. But before I go into all of that, I just want to say a huge thank you to everyone who listened to the previous episodes on Deep Blue Sea and Starship Troopers. March generally uh, wasn't a great month, all being told. There is more information on that in Deep Blue Sea. I'm not going to repeat all that. But I wanted to kick off April with something really super depressing. And actually, The Crow was supposed to come out in March. Again, there is a reason The Crow didn't come out in March. And The Crow is hardly a fun, upbeat movie to start April with. But it is a movie that I think transcends its comic book heritage. It is a dark, gothic story of revenge and redemption. And an actor with a legacy of his own to live up to. 
And all of which ended up becoming this iconic, irreplaceable movie. And thanks to some very early CG, some of the first instances of a recently deceased actor being added into additional scenes of his movie, also the movie could be released as a tribute to him. And what a tribute this movie is for the late Brandon Lee. And Brandon Lee was a man who clearly had so much more to give the world, but a tragic accident left this movie as his legacy. I'm so excited to be talking about The Crow, but I want to start with the trailer for The Crow. People once believed that when someone dies, a crow carries their soul to the land of the dead. But sometimes, just sometimes, the crow could bring that soul back to put the wrong things right. Gasoline, I smell. <laughs> Victims, aren't we all? On the night before Halloween, somewhere in Detroit's dark underbelly, the vicious henchmen of the violent criminal kingpin Top Dollar murder the up-and-coming rock star Eric Draven and his innocent fiancée Shelley Webster. But such is the injustice of the devoted couple's untimely demise on the eve of their wedding that as Eric's restless soul is escorted to the other side, a merciful crow intervenes, bringing his spirit back to settle his unfinished business. Now, with the crow as his sole link between this world and the next, Eric Draven's pale body miraculously rises from its cold grave and is granted permission to take his rightful revenge on his enemies precisely one year later on Devil's Night. As always, I'll quickly run through the cast. We have Brandon Lee as Eric Draven, a.k.a. the crow, Ernie Hudson as Sergeant Daryl Albrecht, Rochelle Davis as Sarah Moore, Michael Wincott as Top Dollar, Bai Ling as Micah, Sophia Shyness as Shelley Webster, Anna Levine as Darla Moore, David Patrick Kelly as T-Bird, Angel David as Skank, Lawrence Mason as Tintin, Michael Massey as Funboy, Tony Todd as Grange, and John Polito as Gideon. The Crow was written by David J. Show and John Shirley, it's based on The Crow by James O'Barr and is directed by Alex Proyas. And as I've already said, the tragic story behind the film version of The Crow is reasonably well known. The tragic story behind the creation of the comic book on which it's based is less so. Creator James O'Barr, who had used art as therapy since his childhood in care, wrote The Crow as a way of dealing with his own loss and grief. That of his fiancée Beverly, who tragically died after being hit by a drunk driver in the late 70s. 
Obar began work on The Crow, reportedly also inspired by the tragic death of a couple in Detroit, who were murdered for a $20 engagement ring in the mid-80s, and the series, which was famously always only printed in black and white, the titular character was first shown on the back cover of Caliber Comics' Dead World No. 10 in November 1988. Ads for The Crow with the tagline, For some things, there is no forgiveness, were run in other Caliber comics before the series was first published in Caliber Presents No. 1 in January 1989. The first limited series, a four-issue series titled Pain, Fear, Irony and Despair, ran between February and May 1989. The plot slightly differs between the comic and the movie, with Eric and Shelley assaulted by street thugs after their car breaks down. Eric is shot in the head but doesn't die immediately. Shelley is beaten, raped and shot before both are left for dead on the side of the road. Eric dies in hospital but Shelley dies immediately. Eric is resurrected one year later and is given his mission by a dark character called This Skull Cowboy, who was going to be in the movie, but more on that in a little bit. But ultimately, Eric is haunted by his memories of Shelley and tortured by her absence. In the comics, Sarah is named Sherry and Eric meets her after hunting down Fun Boy and T-Bird is the head of the gang in the comics, not Top Dollar. James O'Barr would go on to claim that The Crow was the best-selling independent black-and-white graphic novel of all time. Several studios would republish the original stories. A new five-issue series was published by IDW Publishing in July 2012 called The Crow, Death and Rebirth, which was written by John Shirley, one of the co-writers of this movie. And while it's undoubtedly Tim Burton's Batman that started the new comic book trend when it was released in 1989, by the time the early 90s rolled around, Batman Returns was huge, of course, but Marvel's attempts to adapt Captain America and the Incredible Hulk in 1990 just weren't up to par. Then along came Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, itself based on an independent comic book, as well as the highest grossing independent movie of its era. It was clear family-friendly superhero movies were in vogue, but the very family-unfriendly The Crow still had legs. Interest in making a movie on The Crow started soon after it was published. James O'Barr started receiving offers to adapt the story by the time issue number three was rolling out to print. He turned down the first and then got another from writer John Shirley and producer Jeff Most from Paramount. Originally envisaged as a musical starring Michael Jackson, this would evolve into something a lot more in line with O'Barr's original vision. Shirley would write the first draft of the script, which would include some key changes, including making the crow itself an actual physical creature, rather than an apparition from Eric's mind. Horror writer David J. Show came on board for rewrites after Obar objected to some additional changes Shirley had made. Another producer, Edward Pressman, came on board as the project was shopped around studios for investment. Pressman also suggested Alex Proyas as director, despite Proyas never directing a movie before. Up until then, he'd done short films, commercials and music videos, including for In Excess and Crowded House. His video for Don't Dream It's Over had won an ARIA award for Best Video in 1987. Dimension Films would produce the movie under parent company Miramax, who weren't the planned distributor, that would be Paramount. It would end up being distributed by Miramax, but more on that later too. Big name actors of the day were considered for the lead character, including Johnny Depp, Christian Slater and River Phoenix, all of whom Obar preferred. Brandon Lee was an outside choice. He was an up-and-coming actor mostly known as the son of martial arts legend Bruce Lee. His father had died when he was eight years old, and after his death, he, his mother and sister moved to California. Lee had learned martial arts from his father initially, 
before transferring to Dan Inosanto, one of his father's old students, as well as future collaborator Jeff Imada. He would train in dojos with huge pictures of his late father around him, and it can't have been easy to be so much in his father's shadow. Wanting to pursue acting, he trained at Lee Strasberg Theatre and Film Institute in New York before majoring in theatre at Emerson College in Boston. He returned to Los Angeles and received his first credited acting role in Kung Fu the Movie, a made-for-TV movie in 1985. He didn't just want to be known as the son of Bruce Lee, though, and wanted to avoid martial arts roles, but they mostly followed him around in the late 80s and work was work. It was in the late 80s that he had a chance meeting with Stan Lee, who thought Brandon Lee would make the perfect Shang-Chi. Obviously, that movie never happened. In the background, Universal Pictures was ploughing ahead with Dragon, the Bruce Lee story, a biopic based on Lee's late father. Brandon Lee was offered the role but turned it down, finding it awkward to not only play his father, but also depict the relationship between his father and mother. Brandon Lee did, however, spend hours talking to Jason Scott Lee, no relation to either Bruce or Brandon, the actor who was eventually cast in the role as Bruce Lee. Brandon Lee's first American film role was opposite Dolph Lundgren in Showdown in Little Tokyo, and then he starred in Rapid Fire, for which he helped choreograph the fight scenes with his former teacher Jeff Imada, inspired by his father's Jeet Kune Do style. It was during the publicity for Rapid Fire that Brandon Lee landed the role in The Crow, for which he'd lose the muscle he'd put on for Rapid Fire, losing £40 in total. He'd also signed up to a standard three-picture contract because it was hoped sequels would also happen. Before filming The Crow, Lee had become engaged to Eliza Hutton. They planned to marry after the filming concluded in April 1993, and filming was to take place in Wilmington, North Carolina, due to the right-to-work status meaning they could use excessive work hours. The look of the production was a mix of Detroit industrialism and German Gothic architecture. To save money, the production would borrow previously created set pieces from, interestingly, the John Hughes comedy Baby's Day Out, as well as an old cement factory for Top Dollar's nightclub, previously used for scenes in Super Mario Brothers and aforementioned Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Miniatures of the Detroit cityscape were also created. A $15 million budget was attached, as well as a release date of 10th of June 1994. And from the beginning, it was a physically tough and demanding shoot. Alex Proyas had originally wanted to film the movie in black and white to emulate the comic book. However, studio executives disagreed. Proyas would purposefully shoot much of the movie monochromatically with very muted colours, lots of greys and red. Brandon Lee was reportedly unhappy with the original makeup and Proyas suggested he apply it to himself, then sleep in it, giving the crow's face a more haggard appearance. The crow's facial look was based on the mask of tragedy with the black and white and homage to James O'Barr's black and white comic book. And the crows themselves in the movie are not actually crows, they are ravens. Five were used in total and different ravens suited different purposes. But as ravens don't fly in the rain, most of the wet shots show a stationary raven. The main raven, called Magic, would also star in the sequels. The Crow was filmed in the winter months at EUE Screen Gem Studios in Wilmington, North Carolina. And the set was besieged with many issues, including weather, when one of the worst storms in recent memory brought snow and blizzards. Brandon Lee filmed most of his scenes in the cold and wet and often struggled with the freezing conditions. And then bad things started happening to people. A construction worker accidentally stabbed himself through the hand with a screwdriver. Another was electrocuted when the crane he was on hit live power lines. A truck on the set caught fire 
and another careered through the plaster shop driven by a disgruntled ex-worker. Many believed the set was cursed, but it had been nothing compared to what would happen next. Brandon Lee had filmed most of his work up to that point. What he hadn't filmed was the critical flashback to the murders of Eric and his fiancée Shelley. There were a total of eight days of filming left and three of those for Brandon Lee. On the 31st of March 1993, Lee was to film a scene where he returned back to the apartment to find gang members beating and raping Shelley. The character of Funboy would pull out his gun, a Smith & Wesson model 629-44 Magnum revolver, seen in multiple other shots of the movie, and shoot Eric. Theoretically, it should have gone like clockwork. Squibs on Lee's body would detonate and look as if he'd actually been shot, just like any other shooting scene that he'd already finished. The gun had been loaded with dummy cartridges for close-up shots. Dummies are made from real bullets but without powder or primer. These dummies were created on set and it's been acknowledged that the crew were time and budget constrained at the time. One of these dummy rounds had actually gone off but what no one realised was the dummy bullet had become lodged partway into the barrel of the gun. The weapon was reloaded with blanks for the scene in which Eric is shot but the gun itself was not checked or cleared before it was reloaded because the weapons specialist had actually left the set due to all the rest of the weapons work being completed already. The actor playing fun boy Michael Massey pointed the gun at Brandon Lee, fired, and the blank sent the lodged bullet out of the barrel, hurtling towards Lee, hitting him in the abdomen. As the squib had discharged as it should, no one realised Lee was hurt at first. They thought he was basically acting method. No one realised that the blood on Lee wasn't from the squib and when Alex Proyas called Kurt, Lee didn't move. Once they realised he wasn't getting up, medics rushed to his aid, found him unconscious but still breathing. His pulse stopped within three minutes and the production called emergency services and Lee was rushed to New Hanover Regional Medical Centre with a bullet lodged in the stem of his aorta causing massive internal bleeding. He was immediately taken to emergency surgery where surgeons spent six hours trying to save his life. He received 60 points of blood and had extensive vascular and intestinal damage. Brandon Bruce Lee died on the operating table at 1.03pm on the 31st of March 1993. He was 28 years old. His fiancée Eliza Hutton was informed of the accident and flew to Wilmington as soon as she could, but he never woke up to see her. His cause of death was recorded as disseminated intravascular coagulopathy. Put more simply, unstoppable internal hemorrhaging caused by the blood's failure to clot. Within hours of his death, press rumours started circulating around the cause of his death. His father had died mysteriously from a brain edema in 1973, but there were rumours at the time that the Chinese mafia had assassinated Bruce Lee as punishment for exposure of martial arts secrets. Based on this rumour, rumours started on Brandon Lee's death, that the triads, a group of organised criminals with links to the entertainment industry in Hong Kong and Taiwan, had murdered Brandon Lee as he had refused to star in their movies. There were eerie similarities between Brandon Lee's death and a scene in his father's posthumously released movie The Game of Death, in which Bruce Lee's character is filming a movie within a movie and is shot by an assassin posing as a stuntman with a real bullet. Lee's character, Billy Lowe, survives this assassination attempt and uses plastic surgery to alter his appearance and take revenge. This wasn't the original plot for the movie, which was originally Lee saving his siblings and retrieving a stolen Chinese treasure from the top floor of a five-storey pagoda 
fighting martial artists on each level. And this inspires many other movies and video games as well. It was reworked after Bruce Lee's death during filming and released in 1978 as a revenge story, with other actors doubling for Billy Loeb post-plastic surgery. Unlike The Crow, real footage of Bruce Lee's corpse is shown in Game of Death to portray the scene where Billy Loeb fakes his own funeral. An immediate police investigation followed Brandon Lee's death, and the recorded scene was taken and used as evidence to see if a genuine crime had been committed on set. The shooting was eventually ruled an accident due to negligence. The evidence was then destroyed. The scene itself does not exist anywhere. It's not in the film. It's not in any archive. It's not part of any deleted scenes on the DVD. Despite persistent urban legends that it does still exist somewhere, the actor who fired the shot, Michael Massey, would have continued nightmares and mental health issues due to his feelings of guilt, even though he was ultimately not responsible for Lee's death. Massey would quit acting for a short time after the incident as well. A private funeral for Brandon Lee was held on the 3rd of April 1993 and he was buried next to his father Bruce at Lakeview Cemetery, Seattle. His funeral took place two weeks before his wedding to Eliza Hutton was supposed to happen. And upon Brandon Lee's sudden death, production of the movie shut down completely and after a six-week period of mourning, Lee's mother and fiancé decided they wanted the production to continue without Brandon as a tribute to him and to the work he put in. Alex Proyas consulted with the crew and cast, who all agreed that Brandon would want The Crow to be finished and released. And with the blessing of Lee's mother, Linda Lee Cadwell and Eliza Hutton, they set about restarting production and figuring out what they could do to finish the movie. But there was another problem. Paramount Pictures, which was originally set to distribute The Crow, pulled out of distribution after Lee's death, citing that the violent scenes in the movie felt inappropriate. Miramax then stepped up, not only agreeing to distribute the movie, but also inject a further $8 million to ensure it was finished. But The Crow would need some serious reworking, rewrites and reshoots. Rewrites to the script were overseen by Waylon Green, Rene Balsa and Michael S. Chinuchin, adding narration and new scenes, as well as removing certain key elements, including the character of Skull Cowboy. Actor Michael Berryman had filmed his scenes as Skull Cowboy, a character who acts as a guide for Eric Draven to keep him on his mission and not to interfere with anything outside of it. Skull Cowboy would be removed completely from the film, with the crow itself acting as the guide as well as the spirit vessel, and Draven being allowed to spend time with other characters like Sarah, without anyone seemingly punishing him for straying from his mission of revenge. It also led to the ending with Eric reuniting with Shelley and being together in death, something that was never meant to happen at the end of the original script due to the promise of potential sequels where Eric would continue his quest for vengeance on Earth. As Brandon Lee was shooting a flashback scene when he died, this scene was reworked as well as the scenes in which Draven returns from the dead. The idea was to hire a body double of a similar height and frame and film him from behind or in shadow. The scenes completed and finalised post Brandon Lee's death were Eric Draven entering his apartment for the first time post his resurrection, him falling out of the window to his death, him putting makeup on himself in his apartment, him walking towards the window with a crow on his shoulder, and also when Sarah visits the apartment and speaks with Eric Draven. These scenes were filmed with stuntman Chad Stahelski doubling for Brandon Lee, as well as reusing existing footage of Lee from other scenes. Most of the shots of Chad Stahelski, you don't see his face on purpose. For those shots that needed to show Brandon Lee's face, Special Effects House Dream Quest images 
were enlisted to digitally composite Lee's face onto Stahelski. For when Eric Draven enters the apartment for the first time after digging himself out of his grave, footage of Lee walking down an alley in the rain is digitally composed in the scene where Draven walks through the doorway. Some computer technology added water droplets to the doorframe to keep the water on his back from looking out of place. The shot in which Draven falls out of the window was created by digitally compositing Lee's face, complete with simulated blood, onto the body double. The scene where Draven puts his makeup on was filmed with the double. The face in the broken mirror was Lee's, adjusted with the computer to match the shards. The image of Draven walking to the window with a crow on his shoulder was a double, with Lee's face added during the lightning flashes. When Sarah visits the apartment, we never see Draven's face, because it is Chad Stahelski. And this special effects work was state-of-the-art at the time, and despite some of the scenes maybe not holding up as well, such as when Draven is falling out of the window, the other scenes remain remarkably well done, no doubt because of the brevity of the scenes and the dark lighting of the shots. The digital trickery was the first of its kind to be used in a movie, and the reworked scenes, despite their short length, ended up accounting for a third of The Crow's entire budget. But it is absolutely 100% worth it to have this movie and Brandon Lee's legacy available on screen. Brandon Lee was so dedicated to this movie, it's almost poetic that this movie is dedicated to him. And the Cutting Edge Effects team at DreamQuest, who had also worked on Escape from New York, The Abyss and Total Recall, the latter two of which they'd win back-to-back visual effects Oscars, would go on to be acquired by the Walt Disney Company in 1996. They'd be renamed The Secret Lab and would work on Disney's Dinosaur, Disney would close the secret lab in 2001. Their final projects would be Reign of Fire and Kangaroo Jack. I remember Reign of Fire being particularly impressive at the time. And yes, it is on the list for this podcast. And you would think that on-set safety would have improved in the intervening years. However, only last year, cinematographer Helena Hutchins was killed by a bullet on the set of the movie Rust. Filming has also been halted for a police investigation with... Again, reports of cost-cutting on the set. I actually took a brief moment to look at all the reported deaths on film sets over the years, and remarkably, so many crew are still dying for their art, usually stunt people. No one wants to give their life for a two-hour piece of entertainment, but people did, and they still do. Just a couple of examples. 2019's Motherless Brooklyn had a fire on set, which killed firefighter Lieutenant Michael Davidson. 2017's Resident Evil The Final Chapter, crew member Ricardo Cornelius was crushed to death by a Hummer. The same year, stuntwoman Joy S.J. Harris was killed after losing control of a motorcycle on the set of Deadpool 2. A construction worker was killed while dismantling the set of Blade Runner 2049. Stunt pilot Adam D. Perwin and co-pilot Carlos Burl were killed in a helicopter crash filming American Made. And these are just going back five years. And that doesn't include the serious and often life-changing injuries, of which there are countless more. Of course, it's impossible to make a film set 100% safe. Accidents do and will happen. But where firearms are concerned, technology really can make a set safer. You really have to ask the question, why can't we use CG bullets on a film set in 2022? The answer is, I think we absolutely can And I think we must, because there is really no excuse for people to be killed by stray bullets. There was no excuse in 1994, and there's certainly no excuse in 2022. We need to stop this reliance on bullets in films. And really, yet another reason to be totally awed by 
and give our utmost respect to stunt professionals and crew in general, who are definitely the unsung heroes of filmmaking. And let's be honest, when are the Academy and BAFTA, etc., going to start awarding stunt professionals for their work? Because I think it's definitely about time that we saw a best stunt professional, best stunt work Oscar. It's time. It's genuinely time. Speaking of showing love to stunt professionals, let's move on to a man who shows his regards to Cruz on his movie, and that is the one and only Keanu Reeves, because it's time for the obligatory Keanu reference. So this is part of the podcast where I try and link the movie that I'm featuring with Keanu Reeves. Now, this one was pretty straightforward because I've mentioned Chad Stahelski many times on this podcast because he's worked with Keanu Reeves a lot. Obviously, Chad Stahelski, as I said, was the double that they used for the reshoots of The Crow. And Chad Stahelski has done a lot of work with Keanu Reeves. He obviously directed John Wick, John Wick Chapter 2, John Wick Chapter 3, Parabellum. And he's also going to be directing next year's John Wick Chapter 4. He was also the stunt double in The Matrix. So, yeah, there's so many connections between The Crow and Keanu Reeves. One thing I did also want to say is, clearly, I have a thing for tall, dark and handsome because Keanu is very much my type and so is Brandon Lee. Uh, Brandon Lee, so hot. I feel like it's not inappropriate to say that regards to the fact that Brandon Lee is no longer with us. He was a very, very attractive man and yeah, totally my type. That's not the reason why I love this movie, by the way. It's one of many reasons, but oh yeah, Brandon Lee was very good looking. Now, when you think of The Crow, obviously a lot of people think of the general tone of The Crow, but I think most people think of the music of The Crow. And the soundtrack album for The Crow topped several charts and basically consisted of huge bands. Bands like Nine Inch Nails, The Cure, Stone Temple Pilots, Rage Against the Machine. After Brandon Lee's death, a plan for Stone Temple Pilots to re-record a song called Only Dying, which was off a previous demo, was changed to a song called Big Empty. And that song would end up winning an MTV Movie Award for Best Song. Both The Cure and Joy Division, uh, Nine Inch Nails, covered Joy Division's song Dead Souls on this particular album. They were featured in the original The Crow comic book. And when The Crow was released, posthumously, of course, on the 13th of May 1994, it debuted at number two in the US box office, where it stayed for its second week, gaining 23.3% in its gross takings, and being added to 546 extra cinemas, basically on its good word of mouth. It would drop out of the top 10 by its sixth week. Financially, The Crow would gross $50.6 million in the US and $43 million internationally for a worldwide gross of $93.7 million against a budget of $23 million. It would actually end up becoming the 24th highest grossing movie worldwide in 1994. And despite Brandon Lee's untimely death, a sequel to The Crow was quickly put together with The Crow City of Angels released two years later and Vincent Perez playing a new character, Ash Corvin, as the new Crow. The character of Sarah links it to the original, but otherwise it's not related to the original at all. Further director video sequels followed in 2000 with The Crow Salvation and The Crow Wicked Prayer in 2005. A planned sequel to be directed by Rob Zombie the Crow 2037 was written but never materialised. 
There was also a short-lived TV series in Canada called The Crow, Stairway to Heaven in 1998, with the character of Eric Draven, but instead played by Mark DeCascos. Also, an obligatory Keanu reference as DeCascos, also co-starred in John Wick Chapter 3, Parabellum. A reboot of The Crow has been talked about since 2008, with rumours that the likes of Bradley Cooper, Mark Wahlberg, Channing Tatum, Ryan Gosling, James McAvoy, Tom Hiddleston, Alexander Skarsgård, Luke Evans, Norman Reedus, Sam Witwer, Jack Houston, and Nicholas Holt were all considered for the part. Jason Momoa finally signed on for the role of Eric Draven for the reboot, which changed directors and writers over that nine-year period before Momoa was confirmed. In 2018, Momoa exited the project, and in 2019, Alex Proyas commented on the stalling reboot. And here is what he said. He said, I personally try to squash it every time I hear of one. Not that I believe I've been able to. I think extenuating circumstances have stopped it being made. Because if Hollywood wants to make something, they don't listen to schmucks like me who bring noble and moralistic issues. My point is that Brandon Lee made that movie what it is. He made that movie, he made that character. The character was not taken from a comic book, that was Brandon. And Brandon Lee died making that movie. He paid the worst price anyone could ever pay making a movie, and it's his legacy. The guy would have been a huge star after that movie. He wasn't able to ever do that. That's his final testimony to his talent, and that's why I finished the movie. I finished it for Brandon. After being devastated about what happened, we shut down the production, and I went back to Australia. Months later, I went back and watched the movie with his family. All the other actors, everyone involved, said, you've got to finish this movie because Brandon is so great in it. And he was. I was able to watch it and see how great he was. And I thought then the movie deserves to be completed because it's his legacy. So that's what the movie is. It's not just a movie that can be remade. It's one man's legacy and it should be treated with that level of respect. Hot off the presses, though, is the news that Rupert Sanders is directing a new, 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 new reboot starring Bill Skarsgård as Eric Draven with production slated to start in June 2022. Who knows if that one will go ahead, though? Watch this space, I guess, but chances are, I think it probably won't. Right, let's go through some social media thoughts for The Crow. I always like to ask on Patreon and on all of the social medias what people think. And we're going to start with the patrons of this podcast. And we're going to start with perennial commenter Andy, who says, My thoughts on The Crow can be divided into two separate conversations. The first, the movie, is that it's atmospheric and dark, setting the proper stage for Eric Draven. As the accident that tragically took Brandon Lee's life was over a year before the movie was released, the spectre of that tragedy still loomed large over the film. Still, the grimdark feel was the predecessor of many grimdark comic book movies to come, and The Crow did it best. The second is the soundtrack. I've gone on record, no pun intended, that 1994 was probably the best year for movie soundtracks. Opening with The Cure's Burn, you know what you're getting right from the first track. Other highlights include Nine Inch Nails' cover of Joy Division's Dead Souls, For Love Not Least's Slip Slide Melting, and Jill Sabuni's Haunting It Can't Rain All The Time. Definitely worth checking out, especially if you've never sought it out. And just an FYI, Andy also has his own podcast, and I do like to give a little plug for the patrons of this podcast, if they have a podcast of their own. So make sure you check out Andy's podcast. It is called Geek Salad. And basically, kind of like Ron Seal, it does what it says on the tin. If you don't know what Ron Seal is, maybe it's a very English thing. But 
<laughs> don't know why I said that. Yeah, basically, it does what it says on the tin. It is a podcast all about geek culture, movies, music, video games, basically anything and everything. I'll pop some information in the show notes for Geek Salad. It's definitely well worth a listen. And we also have a page comment from Dave who said, Wonderful and dark movie. One on my shelf of VHS tapes watched to death. Never bothered with any sequel for fear of just being disappointed. Gives that whole Heath Ledger Joker vibe as you watch it. Spellbinding and tragic to watch. The final Patreon comment comes from Derek who says, This one still hurts. The Crow is a phenomenal gothic masterpiece and a defining movie for so many in my generation. Also, it is a sobering reminder that no work of art, no matter how iconic and spectacular, is worth a human life. We lost Brandon Lee way too soon. And Derek, along with his amazing wife, Laurel, they host the podcast The Midnight Myth. They basically look at mythology, history and philosophy and basically how those subjects appear in our popular culture. And their podcast is amazing. I love listening to them. I learned so much from their podcast. So I will put some information about The Midnight Myth in the show notes. You should absolutely listen to their podcast. Moving over to Twitter, we are going to start with at Film Effect Pod, who said, Big fan, we covered this a couple of months ago. Such a tragedy what occurred, but Alex Proyas certainly finished one memorable film. I feel like he doesn't get the credit he deserves, all things considered. Curious to see how the school cowboy would have played out. Lee's amazing too. At Hallmark of Great said, Second best film ever made. Super 90s but still stands up. One of the best soundtracks to a film ever, and if I'm being honest, doesn't need a reboot or whatever they've been trying to do for the past 26 years. Some things are just perfect as they are. At Holmes Movies Pod said, Fantastic and unique comic book film. A moving gothic action revenge film with a charismatic performance by Brandon Lee. It is immensely tragic what happened to him during the film's production. Graham Revel's score is haunting and beautiful. Darius Wolski's cinematography is great. At Launching to Pilots said, Such an outstanding soundtrack, still in my playlist. You reminded me that I didn't have the vinyl album, so I got the reissue today. That was actually two tweets. I did put that together, but he also did put a photo of the vinyl and it's a beautiful looking vinyl, I have to say as well. At Oral underscore MFC said, A movie never far from my thoughts. The Crow might be perfect were it not for the tragedy of its creation. To those attempting to remake it, I offer these words from Eric to Tintin. Try harder, try again, because nothing can touch the original. At Thief CGT said, I'm a fan, even with all its warts, which come obviously from the editing and directing hoops they had to jump through after Brandon Lee's death. Lee has an undeniable presence. Moving over to Instagram, just the one comment on Instagram this time round from at the cinema guys who said, one of my favourite comic films, Brandon Lee was taken from us too soon. No comments over on Facebook, but as always, a huge thank you to everyone who took the time to comment on The Crow. The Crow is so bittersweet to talk about. Brandon Lee is so perfectly cast as this character, and you just know he was primed for a huge career in Hollywood after this. It's a dark but stunning visual movie that looks unlike anything else that came out at the time. It's hard to avoid the idea that perhaps Lee's death contributed to the popularity of the movie. Who knows if the movie would have been as big without the shadow of his death looming over it, but it's hard to deny the screen presence of Brandon Lee, and this could have easily been his breakthrough to mainstream Hollywood. As a tribute to Brandon Lee, 
it stands unparalleled. He'll always be remembered for this one great movie. And it was incredibly brave of his family to allow this to be completed and released, let alone the technical marvel it was to complete and release in his memory in the first place. Brandon Lee literally gave his life for this movie. And honestly, I'd be perfectly happy for it never to be remade or rebooted. Undoubtedly, it will be one day. But even without the controversy behind the scenes, it would be very hard to match the tone and feel of The Crow. While it's argued that his performance has inspired others, most notably Heath Ledger's in The Dark Knight, which is another strange coincidence when you then realise that Ledger died shortly after that performance too. Having the melancholy, life-imitating art surrounding a film doesn't usually help, but the subject matter of The Crow is kind of perfectly juxtaposed with Brandon Lee's short but eventful and promising life. The Crow remains compelling, foreboding and eerie, exactly as it's intended to. And as far as legacies go, Brandon Lee has one of the greatest. No longer just the son of Bruce, he's also forever Eric Draven. Thank you for listening. As always, I'd love to hear your thoughts on The Crow. And I would love to hear your thoughts on this episode as well. And it's really easy for you to get involved in this podcast. If you want to get your comments read out in episodes, Simply comment on the thoughts posts that go up on social media. They usually go up on a Saturday. Leave your comment on Twitter, Instagram or Facebook and I will read it out. It's actually that simple. You can also support this podcast without paying a single penny. You can do something like you can leave a rating or review wherever you found this podcast. I mentioned social media. I'm on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram and Letterboxd at Verbal Diorama. And if you follow me on any of those social media, you can do something like retweet and like posts. That always helps as well. But really, the easiest thing you can do is you can tell a friend or family member, especially if they like this movie, to listen to this episode. And if you like this episode on The Crow, you might also like one of the following movies slash episodes that I've done previously. And I wanted to start with a really, really old episode. So episode three is on Dread. Now, Dread is very gritty and very dark. It's also a comic book adaptation. Totally, it's very different to The Crow, but it's a super fun movie and really well deserving of your time. I wanted to suggest episode 26, Constantine, because any excuse to recommend Constantine, I am always here for. Uh, again, kind of gritty and kind of dark, but also kind of a lot of fun as well. And also a little bit maligned. Not a lot of people like Constantine, but it's super fun and it's got Keanu Reeves in it. Obviously, I'm going to recommend episode 42, where I covered the entire John Wick trilogy with Derek and Laurel of The Midnight Myth. I love that episode. Having Derek and Laurel talk about the mythology surrounding John Wick was so fascinating. And obviously, loads of links, as I said, between The Crow and John Wick. And just as a little by note, episode 67, V for Vendetta. Again, another very dark, gritty adaptation of a graphic novel, but really important and really prescient, especially in modern times. As always, give me feedback on my recommendations for episodes. Let me know if you think I missed anything. So the next episode, I'm going to be going to something a bit more fun. In fact, something a lot more fun, a lot more light, a lot more funny, a lot more comedic. Something you might want to dodge, duck, dip, dive and dodge. Well, maybe not Dodge, because I actually want you to listen. One of my favourite 2000s comedies is Dodgeball. And to be honest, sports movies really aren't regular, but enough of verbal diorama. And that needs to change. I need to do more sports movies. 
So the next episode is going to be on the 2004 comedy Dodgeball, aka Dodgeball, a true underdog story. And I look forward to seeing you next week for that. Gah, Steve the Pirate. Yeah, my impressions haven't gotten any better. I'm really sorry. As I said, it's completely free to support this podcast. But if you do want to support this podcast financially, you are under no obligation, but you can also do that too. I have some wonderful patrons. They are at verbaldiorama.com slash Patreon. And all of the tiers are Keanu themed as well, because of course they are. Huge thank you to the patrons of Verbal Diorama. Simon E, Sade, Claudia, Simon B, Laurel, Derek, Vern, Kristin, Kat, Andy, Mike, Griff, Luke, Emily, Michael, Scott, Brendan, Ian M, Lisa, Sam, Will, Jack, Dave, Chris, Stuart, Ian D and Jason. It can't rain all the time. I also have a merch store. It's verbaldiorama.com slash merch. All of the merch that's there at the moment is the mummy themed. I am planning some more designs that are going to be coming out very soon. If you want to get in touch, you can email me verbaldiorama at gmail.com or you can pop over to verbaldiorama.com and fill out the little online form. And I also write bits for film stories. You can check out the magazine. You can check out the articles I write. And you can basically go to filmstories.co.uk and, yeah, read a feature. <laughs> Click on a link. Buy a magazine. Do all of that sort of stuff. And finally. Each one of these is a life. A life you help destroy. Come back. Don't kill me. I'm not going to kill you. Your job will be to tell the rest of them that death is coming for them tonight. Tell them Eric Draven sends his regards. Walk out of here. They're going to erase your sorry ass. You're nothing but street freaks, Eric. Street freaks, you mother... Is that gasoline I smell? No, man. No! 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 Bye. Movie should know.